In that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gebeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them cede the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he had raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept on They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the grain, or of the land. And there were no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by the Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua said to him, and went to him and said to him, are you with us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Some of you are wanting to know if you could do a rock, because you were, maybe missed it last week in the message and the remembrance rocks that we're putting and incorporating into the new facility. And uh, we will have some more uh, in the next couple of weeks and we can gather them together. Um, you know, last week when we did that, I mentioned to you that on my rock, I wrote June uh, 1994, which was a significant event in uh, Catherine and, I and, ours, and our marriage and uh, our, our parenting of our son and just things that were going on medically in the ICU at that moment in time and how we saw God move so mightily and visibly that it just couldn't be ignored. But I very easily could have written October 11th 1983. Um, that was another significant memorial date for me. You know, I had been raised in a Christian home and a church, an evangelical church. I'd learned the gospel and the word of God from an early age. I'd committed my life to Christ for salvation at an early age. But in the particular church that I was in, and the faith tradition was rather legalistic. In fact, it was very legalistic. And so as a result, as I entered into my teen years, I really began to rebel against uh, everything that I had been taught, I was making the classic mistake of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? And so uh, I just saw what was being done, and it was at such a disconnect from what I had been taught as a child. I just was questioning all of it and the validity of Christianity. 
And God began to work in my life and began to pursue me. And this culminated on October 11th, 1983, when I, I, just, I, I knew I had to make a choice. Was I going to commit to Christ his lordship of my life and let him have control and let him lead me and let him define the terms and the agenda uh, and his will for my life or was I going to serve myself? And on that night, he broke through and I just, I, I, I reaffirmed my faith. I surrendered to Christ to do whatever it was he wanted me to do. And on that night, I had a very clear picture and a calling to do what I am doing right now. In Joshua 5, we come to a day of decision for the Israelites that many of us can actually identify with. We can, I think most of us can identify with how things can get so off track in your life that a day like this is necessary. We can identify with how God does not give up on his people, on his redemptive plan, but pursues his people so that he can work out his uh, redemptive plan in their lives and in the lives of this world. And we can certainly identify with how the entire trajectory of our lives can be changed when we are committed and sold out to the Lord. And this chapter does this, it, it speaks to this commitment. In fact, let's go ahead and start right there. The first portion of this chapter, the majority of this chapter is speaking to the commitment of God's people. Now, this commitment takes an interesting form. A few moments ago, I leaned over to my father-in-law who is pastor and preacher for more than 50 years. He, and he can certainly identify with this. And I, I said, it is really surreal to have to step up and preach a sermon where I will probably say more than a hundred times the word circumcise or circumcision in some way or another. Uh, in my, my covenant group this week, uh, as we kind of discussed this passage, one of the guys said, you know, this is kind of so surreal and, and it's, it's like, okay, maybe every time you say that word, we should have some kind of a physical action as a congregation, like, like the tomahawk chalk from the Seminoles or something. And, you know, I, I thought about that. I really considered it. And then I realized that we would be waving our arms so much that people would think we're Pentecostals, not Presbyterians. And so I nixed that whole idea, okay? But it is nevertheless, you can't run from it. Those of you who are guests with us, uh, while it may be uncomfortable at times, one of the things here at Covenant is we don't skip uncomfortable passages of Scripture. Because often in those uncomfortable, for whatever reason, passages, God has a real message for us. And I think that's the case here this morning. And so we begin in verse two, seeing the importance of circumcision. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Haraloth. Now, I would encourage you try, to try not to imagine this event because it is truly cringeworthy. It is cringeworthy. You, you get the idea of how important circumcision is and yet how oh, this event must have been just by the name Gibeath Harloth, which literally means mountain of foreskins. Yeah, I told you it's cringeworthy. Parents, you're gonna have an interesting lunch this afternoon. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so why is this taking place? 
Well, we need to back up. Let's, let's consider, first of all, the, the significance of circumcision. We go back to Genesis a couple of years ago. We went through the book of Genesis and we came to Genesis chapter 17 where God was making this covenant with Abraham where he was committing himself to God and or to Abraham and putting conditions before Abraham wherein they could be blessed and be in relationship with one another. And as God makes this covenant with Abraham, he establishes a sign for this covenant that authenticates the covenant that is to be a remembrance for the generations ahead. And and that sign is circumcision. He says in Genesis 17, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Circumcision was meant to be a sign of commitment and devotion to God. It was a declaration of the Israelites that they belonged to God, that they worshiped Jehovah and they were in covenant with him. They were his people. It was also a sign that was meant to remind the Israelites that not only were they committed to God, but God was committed to them to be their God to protect them, to provide for them, to give them an eternal inheritance and a legacy through the promised seed who would one day come and redeem us and our world from sin. It was also a a, a, um, reminder to the Israelites of God's promises that he was going to make of them a great nation and a people who would one day inherit the land of Canaan and through whom all the world would ultimately be blessed, especially when you consider Jesus himself. So this is the background, the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet the crossover generation, this group of people that we have been studying who've now walked into the promised land, they crossed over the Jordan River in last week's chapter, the crossover generation overall has not been circumcised. The men haven't. And this means that they are not aligned with the Abrahamic covenant. They are outside the blessings of the covenant and the commitments of God towards his people. And instead, they are still aligned with their parents and branded with this stigma of the reproach of Egypt. It's mentioned in verse nine, the reproach of Egypt. What what does that mean? Why are they stuck with this stigma? And what does that stigma mean? There's there's kind of three schools of thought on this and all of them have their, you know, the valid points. One of them is just simply that for the last 40 years, the Israelites have been the punchline of every late night Egyptian comedian when he appears on live with Ramses or late night with Ramses, right? That, that, that they are laughed at and scorned by the Egyptians who said, yeah, you said you were going in and look at you, you've been in the desert for 40 years, your God isn't really God. And, and they were just a joke. And that's the scorn and the reproach of Egypt. Still another has to do with, and I don't know how many of you picked up on it. Verse two talks about um, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel, what? Uh, Second time. Some of you caught that. I mean, it's like, huh? Um, that's, that's a head scratcher. 
Um, but, but here's the idea that Egyptians also practiced circumcision. Many of those cultures in that time uh, would practice circumcision. It wasn't unique that the Israelites and the, uh, circumcised their, their boy children. But the way the Egyptians circumcised was very different than the way the Israelites did. And so among this crossover generation, there are now men who had been born in Egypt. They did not die in the desert because they weren't, their parents died in the desert, but they didn't die in the desert. And they were young enough to have lived through those events, but they were initially born in Egypt. And if they have gone, undergone circumcision in the form of Egyptian circumcision, over time, that circumcision would definitely manifest itself in a way that looked differently and acted differently than the way circumcision was done with the Israelites. Now, if all of you would agree that it's way too much information, say amen. Yeah. But it does make sense of what that reproach of Egypt and why he says do it a second time, at least for some of these. But I think primarily the category that is uh, most likely to be the case is that this reproach of Egypt is referring to their parents and that they were still associated with the sin of their parents, with the parents' allegiance to Egypt. And for 40 years, the stink and the idolatry of Egypt has been associated with them because the parents rebelled against God and they, they would not obey the commandments and the conditions of either the Abrahamic covenant or the, the Mosaic covenant. And so for 40 years, these people had been experiencing the consequences of the parents' self-worship and the parents' idolatry and their allegiance to Egypt. And, and so they, they need to make a stand. They need to say, I'm either with my parents or I'm with God. I'm either committed to what my parents did or I'm committed to what God wants. And so that commitment, that act of commitment is reflected on this day when hundreds of thousands of males get circumcised. I mean, think about it. If you do the math, it's generally agreed that approximately 2 million uh, Israelites cross over into the promised land. And if 40% of that 2 million were male, that's 800,000 men or males. And, and even if you say they're just for this time, they're just circumcising the men who are of the age where they could go to war, you still have hundreds of thousands of men who are on this day getting circumcised to express their commitment to the Lord. And did it work? Absolutely. Because the Bible says that God rolled away the reproach of Egypt, that, that word roll sounds in the Hebrew very much like the Hebrew word for Gilgal. And so this place from that point on was called Gilgal, where God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The importance of this, there's a truth here. Remember, we said we don't skip hard passages because often within that passage, there is an important truth that God is communicating to us or reminding us of. And I would suggest that in this passage, what God is reinforcing to us is that he cares most about the condition of our hearts. Now you might ask, wait, wait a second, I thought we were talking about circumcision, not the heart. But this is very much a reflection of where they were at in their heart. The outward act 
was saying something significant about the inner reality. Think about it for a moment. These warriors, they are on the plains of Jericho, not that far, I mean, just a spitting distance from the city of Jericho, where a strong army awaits. And these warriors all go underneath the knife, and for the next several days, they are incapacitated. They are completely vulnerable. If at any time during that healing process, which took three to five days, the Jericho army could have swept in and destroyed them immediately. We know this is true. Because again, go back to Genesis. I preached a message one day in uh, the chapter of Genesis where the sons of Jacob make an agreement with the the men of Shechem. And it was all a, a strategy because they had abused their sister. And so they go into this business agreement and say, we're looking forward to doing trade with you, but we can't trade with people. We can't be partners with people who don't first get circumcised along the lines of the Abrahamic covenant. And so all the men of Shechem who are seeing dollar signs, they get circumcised. And while they're lying there incapacitated, Jacob's sons come into the city and kill all of them because they can't defend themselves. They're in so much pain recovering from this act. So what does that step of faith and obedience reveal about their hearts? It says something significant, that by returning to God's covenant, they are committing themselves to God's redemptive plan for their lives and for the life of their nation. Their renewed commitment to God in the act of circumcision literally demonstrated their vulnerability before God. And church, there is no relationship with God if we do not first come in a spirit of vulnerability and transparency and humility. And so the nation's men and the nation as a whole is saying something to God that the outward physical act of circumcision, we are coming to you with a desire to be reconciled to you, to commit our lives to you, to be your people once again, to be in covenant with you. This is the desire of our heart to commit ourselves to you. The proof of it is the outward sign of circumcision. The outward physical act is always meant to reveal the condition of the heart. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter two. In Romans chapter two here, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles alike. He says to Jews, listen, just because you have gotten circumcised does not mean that you are a Jew. Does not mean that you're a true Israelite in the family line of Abraham, the father of faith. And he says, listen, if you do not commit your life to Christ and you do not follow his way, your circumcision means absolutely nothing. In fact, the Gentile who has never been circumcised, but who has surrendered his life to Christ and is committed to Christ and obeys the word of Christ, that uncircumcised Gentile is actually a true Jew, a true Israelite, a member of the family of faith of Abraham. 
And then he says this in verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in these opening verses, the importance of circumcision is wrapped up in what it says about the heart for these Israelites who have crossed over. It also was an important prerequisite to taking the Passover. In verses 10 to 12, you see the celebration of the Passover. And, and what we need should realize, and please advance the slide, since uh, essentially for 40 years, 39 or 40 years, Passover does not seem to have been observed by the Israelites. We have no record of it. So think back for a moment. In Egypt, they undergo the first Passover. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Passover, Moses comes to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, where they had been for 400 years. Pharaoh does not want to let them go. So under the power of God and his instructions, Moses brings plague upon plague upon plague upon the Egyptians. The 10th plague is going to be the death of every firstborn male child in that nation. And so to, to protect the children of Israel and those infants, God tells Moses and Moses tells the people, go, set, grab a lamb, sacrifice him on the 14th day of Nisan, which is their first day of the year, first month of their calendar year, and take that blood and smear it across the doorpost and then eat the lamb in a particular way, worship God, and when the angel of death comes by, he will pass over your home when he sees the blood. And of course, there's rich imagery here pointing to the fact that one day the ultimate lamb of God will be sacrificed and his blood must be painted on the doors of our hearts so that one day when death comes, it does not claim us, but instead we are reunited with our heavenly father. They go through this moment. They, the Passover takes place. And of course, Pharaoh is so devastated, he lets the Israelites go. One year later, outside of Mount Sinai, as they're camped there and God is interacting with Moses, the 10 commandments and the law, they observe it again, one year after the first observance. But then if you remember the story, from that point on, the Israelites begin to rebel, complain, grumble against God. And there is no record in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus that they observe the Passover again. So apparently, not only were they not circumcising their children in obedience to, both the, uh, in obedience to the old covenant, they were not participating in the Passover meal until this moment in time they come. The step of covenant renewal was circumcision, has now revealed the condition of their heart, that they are committed to God. And so it is fitting for Israel to now participate in this family meal because their hearts are now right before God. Let's think about this. Let's, let's connect some dots here for a second. You know, oftentimes near the end of the message, we all ask the most important question in the sermon. What's the most important question? So what? That's right. But now we're gonna bring it up. Let's stop right here and ask that question. So what? What is the gospel application in this scene that is all admittedly a little 
cringeworthy and very uncomfortable to preach. Well, if you remember last week, um, I mentioned that the symbolism of crossing the Jordan River for these people is not to reflect what the, the hymn uh, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand reflects and teaches. It's not meant to, to, to symbolize our dying here on earth and then getting to wake up in heaven. But instead, it's that crossing of the Jordan River from the wilderness into the promised land is more analogous to our salvation and sanctification. How we have come out of death into life, we come out of the wilderness and the barren wilderness of sin, and we enter into the promised land where we are now reconciled with our Savior and our Father, Heavenly Father, and we enter into a covenant relationship with Him and begin to walk with Him in that covenant relationship. This is actually more analogous of what's happening in the Christian life when we consider this event in ancient Israel. And so thinking about that, as circumcision was that outward sign of commitment that was meant to, to reflect the inner reality of the Israelites, in the same way, baptism does the same in the new covenant. And just as circumcision and what it represented was an important prerequisite to enjoying the Passover as God intended, so too is baptism and connecting with God's family and the Lord's body, the church, an important prerequisite for enjoying the Lord's Supper. In both cases, in both cases, the outer sign is meant to stress the importance of the inner reality. Church, God cares most about the condition of the heart. It is not the sign itself that is of first importance. Case in point, we, Paxson referred to it in our prayer this morning, the two thieves on the cross. One of those thieves commits his life to Christ in the last hours of his life and he repents of his sin and embraces Jesus as savior, he never receives the sign of the new covenant, baptism, yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in heaven. Remember what Paul says, you, may, you can be an uncircumcised Gentile, but what makes you true Israel, true Jew, and the family of faith is have you committed your life to Christ and are you following him? So it's the heart attitude that's most important, but that doesn't mean the sign isn't important. It is important. And under most circumstances, God calls on us to receive the signs of his covenant. It is a commitment on our part to him. And it is a, a, a recognition that he is sealing and authenticating us as true children of God. So in that case, some of us may need to come to this passage this morning from one of two perspectives. Some of us may need to come to this question, to this passage and say, and ask, am I like the Exodus generation? Not the crossover generation, the Exodus generation. Am I actually like the Exodus generation? Does the inner reality of my heart correspond with the sign of the covenant that my parents placed upon me as a child or an infant in faith and hope for the day that I would truly become a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I actually a member of the Exodus generation? Because I've never made real 
what my parents applied in faith and hope. And so this passage is a call upon all who are in this case that if the inner commitment is not there, then you need to turn to Christ. You need to embrace the reality behind the sign and submit to him and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. The sign is meant to call you and remind you that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you commit to him if you have not done so. It's time to ensure that even though you're here in church, that you may serve in church, that you may worship, it's time to ensure that what you do for God and for Jesus is coming out of and a reflection of who you actually are in Jesus Christ. And so for those of you who like me were raised in a Christian home, this is a critical question. Has the faith of my parents actually become my faith? That I own it, that I believe it, that I'm committed to Christ? Important question, important application. Others of us are members of the crossover generation. Your commitment is there, but you have not yet committed to his body through baptism. Or perhaps you've been baptized at some point, but you have not committed to identifying with his people and and getting into a local church, the body of Christ, a local representation of that universal invisible church that transcends the decades and you're resisting this. Commit, commit. Church, God cares about the the, the condition of your heart. And this is a call upon all of us Richard Hess in his commentary on the book of Joshua writes this, the New Testament encourages identification with the people of God through participation in the church. Ephesians 2 discusses circumcision as a means of entry into the Old Testament covenant community. It compares this to Christ's death on the cross, which provides the way to become part of the new covenant community of Christians. God cares about the condition of your heart first. Are you like the Egyptians or the crossover generation? Important question. Let's move on to the the commander of God's army. We've seen the, the commitment of God's people. Now let's see that commitment play out in the life of Joshua as he interacts with the commander of God's army. Joshua kind of begins this this interaction with this commander in a leading question. Are you for us or for you, are you for my adversaries? Are you for us or for my enemies? And if you put yourself in Joshua's shoes, you can understand why this is a reasonable question. I mean, picture this day. He goes out later in the evening, you know, he's, maybe he's scoping out the, the, the battlefield. And Jerry, I mean, he's the general, he's the warrior leader of the Israelites. And as he's there, he sees a soldier, clearly a, an impressive warrior with a drawn sword. That's not typically a good sign when you bump into somebody with a drawn sword in that environment. And so he's asking, um, do I need to fight or are we okay? Are you for us? Are you for them? And and that's a very reasonable question, isn't it? I'd ask that question. 
And I think in the same way, I would be shocked at the answer. The warrior says, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Oh, time out, time out. <laughs> what? Wait a second. If, if you're a Joshua and you ask the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? What are you hoping and expecting to hear? Us, right, I'm for you guys. I'm for you guys. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. What does that mean? What does that even mean, right? I mean, Joshua was a warrior. He sees things very black and white. There is, there's us and there's them. There's our army and their army. There's our battle plan and their battle plans. There's their cities and those cities that we intend to conquer. I mean, it's very black and white. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No, wrong. I mean, what the commander's saying here in his answer, there's me and I have arrived to lead you. Forget your preconceptions. Forget your battle plan for Jericho. I'm about to turn that whole thing upside down in a way that you could not even begin to imagine. There's me and I'm in charge. So forget all of those things and get in line with me because I have a plan and you're to follow it. Hey, when you think about that, that's actually the right response for this commander who leads the army of the Lord. The Israelites do not have the luxury of simply dismissing and demonizing Jericho because God has his people behind those walls whom he intends to graft into the family of faith with Rahab and all the family. We saw that in Joshua too. And unknown to Joshua at this time, there are some people within the family tree in Israel that through this battle, God intends to cut them off forever from within the family of God. So it's not so clean cut as to say there's us and there's them. The commander is after one thing, God's people, God's redemptive plan. And they're on both sides of that wall. In essence, what he's saying God is for God, period, full stop. God is not a partisan. No one can, can claim God for their side, contrary to the other side. The, the Americans can't claim him over the communist. And, and Republicans can't claim him over Democrats or Democrats over Republicans. And Presbyterians can't claim him over the Baptist or vice versa. Because the truth is God is for God, period. And what he's saying in this passage is important. God does not get on our side. God has his side. And the onus is on us. The onus was on Joshua, the people of Israel, and us in the modern day church to get on God's side, to get in sync with his plans, his works, his will, not the other way around. Sometimes we need that reminder so that our perspective is right. 
of who's actually in charge at Covenant Church, United States of America, this world that we live in. Well, when Joshua was confronted with this, his response reveals his heart, his commitment to God. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So what? What do we take away from this interaction? Where's the intersection of the gospel in this passage with our lives, I would suggest it's all wrapped up in this commander of the Lord's army. Now in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of questions. Who is this person? <clears throat> is it an archangel? Is it a, one of the powerful angels of God that is leading the, the angels of God in battle? But I would suggest to you that what we have here is a Christophany. Uh, and in, in the Old Testament, on several places, there's either a theophany or Christophany, where either God the Father or God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, actually steps into space and time and physical history with a, a, some form of a physical body. For Jesus, it would be a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. And there's several of these in the Old Testament all the way back to the opening pages where it says that, that God in the afternoon would, or in the evening would come down to the garden and he would walk with Adam and Eve and they would fellowship with one another in each other's presence. Well, God is the spirit. How does he walk? How does he, it is a very real possibility that this is a theophany or a Christophany in the garden. We talked about Abraham earlier. There was a Christophany that appeared there when one day Abraham looks up and sees three men approaching him. And when they get there, they interact with one another. And later it's revealed that two of those men are the angels who will go to Sodom and Gomorrah and bring about its destruction. The third was their boss, who was like the son of God. One of my favorite, I think Christophanies, I think it was Jesus, pre-incarnate form of Jesus. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that story? These three Hebrews are true to God. They're committed to him. They're now going to pay with their lives. Nebuchadnezzar takes them, throws them into the fiery furnace. Everybody's celebrating. Ha, justice has come. And Nebuchadnezzar looks down and he says, um, hey guys, didn't we throw three people into the fiery furnace? I love this line. So, so why are there four walking around? And the fourth is shining with the very glory of God himself. What an incredible pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus. I think you have the same thing going on right here, that Christ has appeared. And church, our first and right response when we consider Christ is Joshua's response of heartfelt worship a heart filled with awe and humility. Certainly this is what happened to the apostle John on the island of Patmos when Jesus appeared to him in that vision with the sword of truth as a warrior who is now going to begin doing battle against the city of Satan, the city of sin, spiritually called Babylon and the book of Revelation reflects this battle that takes place between our warrior king until Revelation 19 when he returns leading the army 
armies of God and no one can stand before him. And just as Joshua comes into this presence and John sees this presence of the commander of God's armies, John falls on his face and worships him. And later, when John is interacting with a glorious angel, he falls on his face before that angel and begins to worship. And the angel goes, uh, 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 no, 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 no. Stand up. You do not worship me. I'm not God. And so what we have here, I mean, I think the clincher is he uses the very same language that God used at the burning bush with Exodus. Take off your feet, your sandals. You're on holy ground and worship me. So when we see Jesus in this way, church, we can't help but respond the way Joshua did. Humility and worship of total surrender and commitment. And church, this week as we celebrate Thanksgiving, may we consider our great commander who has led the way. He has carried that cross to Calvary's hill, dying in our place so that our sins could be forgiven buried and then as the first fruits of our own resurrection, resurrected to life and ascended and sits at the right hand of the throne of God interceding on our behalf. Our greater commander, our greater Joshua has led the way, meaning he alone is worthy of our commitment and devotion and worship. And in light of that this week, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, may we pause at and ask, like Joshua, in light of all of this, what does my Lord say to his servant? What does my Lord say to his servant? Lord, would you say what we need to hear even this week as we ponder your glory and your might, and your power, your presence in our lives? Forgive us, Lord, when we too often resemble the Exodus generation, although we may be members of the crossover generation. Lord, give us your grace so that more and more as we walk on this side of Jordan and salvation, that we would be transformed into your image, humbled, serving you, surrendered to you, relying and depending upon you alone for the grace and the strength that we need to bring honor and glory to your name, Jesus. We ask these things in your name, amen.